Uh, let, me, let me pray for our time and we'll, we'll begin in, in uh, Luke 19. Father, thank you for your word. I, I thank you that we can uh, trust it because it's from you and you are completely trustworthy. And uh, we thank you that you've given us your spirit to help us understand the truth that you intend for us to, to, to glean from this passage. And I pray that you would do that now as we study this, that your truth would prevail through our conversation and it would glorify you as well as sanctify us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Luke 19. Luke 19 begins, um, says he entered Jericho and was passing through. So what do we know about Jericho? Where is it located? Well, you, it's the Dead Sea, right? It's the northern part. Actually, I, I, I got a map. It's right, the little red, I think I actually have a pointer on here somewhere. Ha, huh, look at that. Jericho's right there. It's right on the northern part of the Dead Sea, um, adjacent to the Jordan River. Josephus, Josephus who, the historian, describes it as... as the most fruitful area in Judea. So it was, it was a really, um, the climate there was ideal. So a lot of rulers and wealthy families built large homes there. Um, the reason I kind of bring this up is it made it a big target for taxes. So that, that's the point I'm, I'm wanting to bring out of that. Then we get into this story of Zacchaeus. So, so what's the song about Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. That's not the main point of the story. <laughs> Children's songs often are very catchy, but they don't bring out the big important part of the story. So like what's the children's story about Jonah about? A big fish. That's not the main part of the story. I mean, it's a catchy thing, but it's not the main part of the story. The fact that Zacchaeus was a a small, wee little man, okay, it's interesting, but that's not the main part of the story. Okay, let me get back on track here. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. So what are the things that we learn about Zacchaeus here? Besides being a wee little man. A chief chief tax collector, right? So not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, and that made him rich. rich. So he's got a lot of money. Um, then what? Okay, I think I got these. Chief tax collector, rich. He wanted to see Jesus, right? So what did he do? He, he runs ahead, 
Okay, did, did men run in that, cli- in that culture? Rarely. I mean, they wore those big robes, right? So you almost have to hike your robe up. In fact, they would tuck it between their legs to run. I, I don't know. I, I've never tried to do it. Um, they didn't know you. They didn't know me. Yeah. <laughs> so they, yeah, I do enjoy running. Um, so he, he ran ahead, so, but he couldn't see. So Jesus, at this point in time, has probably got a large following with him. So he's going to draw a crowd when he goes into Jericho because they're going to be like, what's the commotion? Who's, what's this big group coming in? You know, it must be somebody important. Um, so he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see Jesus was passing by. Was this usual for someone like Zacchaeus? I see head shaking no. What, what's unusual about it? And the running is one, but climbing a tree? Um, if he was chief tax collector, what would that be comparable to in our culture? It's like a secretary of treasury or something. I mean, it's a pretty high-ranking position. If he wanted to meet with somebody, what did he normally do? Run and climb a tree? He just sent somebody, hey, tell him I want to see him now. You come, you come see me now. So this was a pretty unusual thing for him to, hey, let's, I'm going to run ahead and climb a, climb a tree. This guy, I don't, I don't picture him as being extremely young. You don't get to be a chief tax collector in your 20s. He's probably an older man. So he's extremely curious about Jesus. He wants to know what what is it about this guy. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. So there's a lot in these verses, so I've got several questions. What does Jesus do when he sees Zacchaeus? He he basically invites himself, right? Do Do you think he knew him? There's no evidence that that he knows him. I I said he he probably had never met him before. I mean, Jesus would know about him because of his character, because Jesus knows things that we don't know. He's omniscient. But he could have stayed with numerous other people that support his ministry. But he chose to stay with someone that the Jews would despise. They would despise a chief tax collector. But he chose to stay with him. Why? 
This man needed something, didn't he? He was in need of salvation. He needed forgiveness to have his relationship with God restored. Jesus initiated the conversation too. He's walking along. Zacchaeus is not yelling at him like other people have. Jesus initiated this conversation. So what command did he give him? Hurry and come down. So I've got to stay at your house. What did Zacchaeus do? He hurried and came down. I mean, it's the same words. He hurried and came down, and then it said it received him joyfully. So he was like, hey, come on over to my house. Um, Who are they in the crowd? We don't really know, to be honest with you. Other translations have people. So I am going to make the assumption that it undoubtedly was Jews, probably religious leaders and their followers, but we don't know for sure. Um, But from their attitude toward him, I'm pretty sure it was Jews because these people were like, This guy's a sinner. I mean, they despised Zacchaeus. So I think it's pretty evident that they were Jewish. This would be like a a pastor going to visit a notorious gang member or a drug dealer in their society or a mafia member or something if if you're old enough like me to remember the Godfather. It's something like that where they would have really looked down upon him for going to visit this guy. This guy's a chief sinner. It was probably what they were thinking. Um, one of the things to notice in their statement when it says they grumbled, he has gone. So he's already left when they said that. So there's a time gap in there between those two verses. Um, And Jesus had left with Zacchaeus when they grumbled about him. Um, Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. So they're apparently in Zacchaeus' house at this point. What do we learn from his statement? I'm sorry. Yeah. You're seeing evidence of repentance. How does this compare with the rich young ruler from the previous chapter? What did Jesus ask him to do? Give away your riches because 
Well, he, he didn't say this out loud, but it was basically because they've become an idol to you. And the, the guy went away sad. So you're seeing a, a pretty stark contrast between how these two men have responded. There's no evidence that Jesus asked him to say these things, but it's evidence of repentance. At some point, you know, maybe they're having a meal. He stood, it says he stood up and committed to giving half his belongings to the poor. This was a bold act of repentance. It would be very evident publicly. You start giving away, if you're rich and you start giving away a lot of money, it's, it's pretty evident. And it would shock the people at the table when he said this, except for Jesus. Um, Stephen, you can help me out. The, the Greek word for if has several meanings, right? So he says, if I have defrauded anyone, another way of translating that would be in every instance where I have defrauded anyone. If can mean not if, like, if, there, if it's questionable of whether I did it or not, but for every instance where I've done it. That, that's a correct, yeah. So if, if has that, that different meaning, I think that's probably a more correct way to think of this. Because for him to be very rich, he, that's what tax collectors did, is they collected as much as they could and then gave Rome what they needed to. So they got rich by collecting more than they were really supposed to. And he's saying, in every instance where I've defrauded someone, I'm going to pay him back fourfold. So this is a pretty dramatic statement by him. How does Jesus respond? Pretty positive statement, isn't it? He declares that salvation has come to that house. So he's referring to Zacchaeus. Um, so his outward repentance, as we, we mentioned, his outward repentance was a sign of an inward change, inward transformation that occurred in him. It's the opposite reaction of that rich young ruler. So when, when Jesus had challenged him to give away his riches, he went away sad. And Jesus had said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. Well, God brought a camel through the eye of a needle with Zacchaeus. He did what was considered to be impossible, and brought salvation to a rich man. Jesus had said that nothing is impossible for God, and, that, and now he's proving it. I'm convinced that these stories occurred fairly close together in time, and they're recorded close together in Luke so that we can contrast them. God wanted us to understand Yes, it, humanly speaking, it's difficult for a, a person 
who idolizes their riches to come to faith in Christ. But it can happen. God can do it. God can change lives. And he's showing us that he's done that with Zacchaeus. I think these stories are are very, when you contrast them, it really helps you to understand the character of God and, and what he can actually do. Jesus' statement in verse 10 says, For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. It's confirmation of the salvation of Zacchaeus, but it's also a statement about what Jesus' purpose was. His purpose was to save the lost. That's why God sent him. Because on our own, we can't earn God's favor. We can't provide redemption. We can't be forgiven. It's only through the finished work of Christ that we can be saved. And this was when he came, he came as a suffering servant for our good and his glory. And that's what we're seeing with the, this first coming of Christ is, is his coming as a suffering servant. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What's the purpose for this next parable? wants to correct a a misconception, right? What's everyone expecting the Messiah to do? Conquer Rome. Yeah, you're right. They're expecting him to come and free them from the oppression of the Romans. And he's not going to do that yet. So he wants them to understand why, why, what's the real situation going to be like. So he's going to tell them this parable. Um, The crowd was listening intently, so he wanted to take this opportunity to correct this wrong belief. Um, He's coming to Jerusalem not to establish his kingdom, but to suffer. They, they had heard his words. He had told the disciples specifically that he was going to have to die, and, and they didn't fully comprehend it. They didn't understand what he was talking about. His first coming was as the suffering servant. His return will be as the conquering king. Then this is a parable. He said, he said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling ten of his servants, he gave them ten minas and said to them, 
engage in business until I come. But the citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. So, who's the nobleman in this story? What's the Sunday school answer? It's Jesus, right? So, Jesus is the nobleman. That's kind of the easy one. Um, What's the journey that he must take? Think about it for a second. This nobleman is going to command um, a kingdom. He's going to reign over a kingdom. But before he can reign over the kingdom, he has to take a journey. For Jesus, what was that journey? What? His death and resurrection. Yeah. His journey had to go through the cross, right? In fact, if you, you think about the temptation of Christ by Satan, that's I think was the biggest temptation that Satan had is he he offered him to rule over this kingdom without the cross, right? But that would have been disobedience to his father. It would have been sin for him to do that. So here, the journey, it's the suffering and death of the cross. He had to, he had to endure the journey to receive his kingdom. Who are the servants? The servants are the... It's the followers, right? So the followers, uh, you could say it was the disciples, but I think it's more than the disciples. It's whoever is following Christ. Um... He entrusted them with money to invest for their for their master. So a mina is about a hundred days' wages at that time. So it's a it's a fair amount of money. It's not a trivial amount. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see why he gave them this money, and and that'll be very evident as we go through the story. Um, who are the citizens? So the the citizens, it says, hated him. Well, who is it that hated Jesus? It's the religious leaders and their followers, right? So the Jewish leaders and many of their followers... They openly rebelled against Jesus. They opposed his work. So they would be the citizens. So this nobleman had gone on his journey. It says, when he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him 
that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant. Because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over ten cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And you are to be over five cities. So, what's the purpose now that we see for entrusting these servants with money? Yeah, so, so it wasn't just to earn more money, but it's to find out Who's responsible out of my followers? Who's the responsible one that I can entrust with responsibility later in in my kingdom? Now, the application that you've mentioned for us is God hasn't, money may be part of what he's given us, but I think God has given us talents and abilities that we're to be using in this life for kingdom work. And we'll one day give an account to him for, okay, what did you do with the the mina that I gave you? What did you do with the talents and abilities and, and resources that I entrusted to you? Uh, the nobleman returned, he received, he had received his kingdom, and then his, the money was to gauge their ability, and then they were given responsibility proportional to the success they had had with their money. Then another came, saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I have kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you were a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. And he said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in the bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. How had this servant responded? What had he done with his mina? What did his actions show? Well, he disobeyed. The instruction was specifically engage in business until I come. Right? The nobleman didn't merely say, here, hold this in safety for me until I return. The direction yeah. Yeah. The instruction was was very specific to engage in business, invest this money, and he failed to obey. Yeah, you, you hit it on the the nail on the head. He failed to obey the master's command. He shows a lack of trust in the master. Now, when the nobleman says. 
I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. He's just asking, is that what you thought about me? It's not that he's saying I'm, I am a severe man. Because the nobleman, Jesus is not a severe man. Apparently, this servant had the attitude that, well, if I, if I gain money with it, you're just going to take it from me. And if I lose money, then you're going to punish me. And so I'm not going to do anything with it. And uh, how did the master respond to him? Well, he, he took his money, right? He rebuked him. He failed to even gain interest on it. I kind of got ahead of myself. Um, how did he respond? And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. And I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Was this man treated fairly? What did he start with? Nothing. What did he end with? Nothing. That sounds fair, doesn't it? I mean, you could, you know, people might argue otherwise, but. And it was because of his unfaithful attitude. His poor stewardship showed he was not worthy to rule over a portion of the master's kingdom. So his mina was given to the, the man who showed faithfulness to the master. Now, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. So who's the, who are these enemies and what's their outcome? It's those citizens, right, that didn't want him to reign over them. And they were going to suffer his wrath for their rebellion. And it's basically judgment for sin. They weren't going to be forgiven, so they're going to face his just wrath for sin. Now, I think it's very noteworthy that none of the servants receive judgment for rebellion. So even that one servant who did nothing with his mina, he got rebuked by the nobleman, but he didn't suffer this, you know, execution, to be bluntly. So this, these that are slaughtered before him are those that don't believe don't trust him. They don't have faith in him. 
And they receive this judgment for rebellion against against the, the nobleman. What are some principles out of this? Well, we saw Jesus offer salvation to all people. I mean, if you think about Jewish culture at that time, a chief tax collector would be despised. And nobody would think that he was worthy of salvation. Jesus showed that he was. Jesus initiated the conversation with Zacchaeus, went to his house, and Zacchaeus trusted in him. And then his his life was changed. He was transformed through his encounter with Christ. He was not the same man after that. We don't know the whole story, but I'm guessing that he probably resigned as tax collector and uh, no telling what he ended up doing, but maybe went into the ministry. Who knows? What else do we see? Okay. This story, especially the story of the nobleman, shows how Jesus had to be the suffering servant before he could be the conquering king. He had to endure the journey of the cross before he could come to to conquer. And finally, believers, we need to look at, at how we're handling the the talents that God has given us. We're going to be rewarded for our faithfulness. And unbelievers are going to faith God's wrath for their rebellion. There are actually two judgments that will occur. The one is, I think it's the Bema seat, is, is when believers will be rewarded for their, uh, their faithfulness. And then the great white throne is where unbelievers are going to face God's wrath for sin. I think I got the two straight. So there's those two judgments that are going to occur. Believers will not face the great white throne because Christ took the full penalty for our sin. So we don't face God's wrath for sin. And the, the Bema seat is, is, is not, a, it's not a judgment as we think of it. It's more of a, a reward. It's, 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 like, um, going, it's like payday for an employee almost. It's, here's your rewards for your faithfulness as a servant. Some will get more rewards than others depending on how they've acted. So how can we apply these? Well, if salvation is for everyone, who do you know that needs to hear the truth about Jesus Christ? 
Every one of us have neighbors, coworkers, family members that, that don't know Christ. Maybe you're the one that will share that truth with them so they can come to faith. See, sharing the gospel is not difficult. All you have to do is help them understand, first of all, that we're all sinners. No, we're not as bad as Hitler or you, you name whoever you want. We're not bad, but, but we don't meet God's standard. His standard is perfection. Then they need to understand, well, okay, if, if, I, if I don't, if I fall short of God's standard, what's the outcome? Well, the wages of sin is death. So it's, it's eternal separation from God. So what, what's the alternative then? Well, then you need to tell them about what Jesus Christ did for them. Jesus did live a perfect life. His death on the cross was not for his sin, but for ours. Then they just need to trust that that sacrifice redeemed them. It paid the penalty for their sin so they could be forgiven. It's not hard to tell somebody about the gospel. Then how will the master reward you when he returns? What's he going to say you did with the minas, the mina that he entrusted with you? Hopefully he'll look and say, you're faithful. I'm going to make you responsible for this area of my kingdom. Questions, yeah. So if the noble man is Jesus and Jesus is omniscient, doesn't God already know the faithfulness or lack thereof all believers in all times. And so in that case, in the parable, it would seem that to give out these talents to the servants in order to test their faithfulness would be unlikely because he would already know the end result. Perhaps then could they be given for the sake of practice, right? The nobleman knows it, how his servants will act, so it's going to let them practice responsibility? It, it's possible. Um, the, the question you give up or you, the question raises the same kind of thing to me as the doctrine of election. If God knows who's going to be saved, well, then why do we share? Why is it our responsibility to share the gospel with people? Because we're commanded to. God but, yes, Jesus we're commanded to. If Jesus knew, if Jesus knows how people are going to act, he still wants to reward us based on our level of faithfulness. And so, yes, he knows how we're going to act, but he still gives us that, that option. 
throw that out there and see what happens, but more revealing to each of us how where is our faith instead of revealing to God that we're faith. Does that make sense? Maybe. But you bring up an interesting point. You know, faithfulness in this life is is practice for the next, but I think it, it is more about, you know, Faith shown in this life is essential for salvation. You know, once once you've passed, the, the story's over. Yeah, go ahead. If you look at it through the eyes of if God already knows, then why? Then you have to look at our point of salvation. If God already knows from the point of salvation, why are we still here? If he already knows that we're believers and he already knows how we're going to behave, how we're going to are missing the point of why we're here in the first place. Why are we left after right. salvation? And that's like, to serve hold, him. number one. Give him glory, number two. We're going through a process of sanctification. He is testing us and he is getting us trials and all of that to make us more like Christ. It's not about him looking at us and seeing how we respond. Obviously, right? He already knows. He knows that. Um, but it's, it's for his glory through us. Now, God has a purpose for believers in this life. If he didn't, you know, the minute you come to salvation, he'd take you home. But he has a purpose for us in this life. You're right. Yeah, and that that servant who was not faithful didn't have a right view of the nobleman, did he? Did I mean the actions of the nobleman were not unjust? But in his mind, he that you're overbearing. Yeah. Now, I think it's important to to remember, though, that even that servant who who didn't do anything with his mina, he didn't face the the wrath of of the nobleman. He he did get rebuked, but he didn't face the same execution that that those who opposed him did. Yeah. So even though he. His rewards were were less. He didn't lose his salvation. Yeah. In the Matthew parallel of the same parable, he does. Oh, he does lose his? Yeah, the the talent is taken away from him, and he's cast out into into the outer darkness where there's weeping, gnashing of teeth. Okay. I didn't catch that. I should have. Now, there are a couple of different detailed differences between the two brothers. Yeah, but, yeah. Uh, but yeah. Interesting. Can I, the, Go ahead. The, uh, this whole parable was was given 
specifically because people thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately. Right. Uh, so my question is, does should we learn something about the timing of the coming of the kingdom from this parable? And I think the answer is yes. Yes. The timing was not then. He, he, had, he did not come the first time to establish his kingdom. So then are we to conclude that the kingdom will not be here until the second coming? There are different views on that. Um, you can easily say that, okay, his kingdom here on earth will not be established until he comes as the conquering king. Um, He's also, he has established a kingdom now because he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So he is in a position of of authority now. Um, I think it's, the reference is more toward his his earthly kingdom and that it will not occur until his second coming. But there are different opinions on that. And uh, I try to, I try to, be, to honor, because there, there are theologians on both sides of that. Go ahead. Isn't it, um, I mean, what I'm seeing is he doesn't say when he's coming back, but they, right. are, they are told, be faithful with what I have given you until I come right. back. Right. So from a timing standpoint, I mean... The yeah, and then that's consistent now, with the rest of Scripture, that Jesus did not tell us when, when he's coming back. There'll be signs about when he's coming back, but we don't know the specific timing of it. So then his journey is not only his uh, crucifixion and resurrection, because if that were the journey, then his resurrection would mean him coming back and establishing his kingdom. So you would say the journey then would be through the ascension. I, yeah, you could, if, if you want to take that interpretation, yeah. Um, it's, it's difficult to draw too many parallels out of the, the parable because I think, you know, parables typically have one or two main points, and the main point out of this one is that, okay, his first coming was not to establish his kingdom. It's, it's when he returns. Um, so, the, yeah, you could say the journey needed to be more than just a cross. But... Yes. perfect timing that's the time and like Mallory said there's things that need to happen right we have to be faithful in that timing of time and silver looking at the two feet it says that you know why is Jesus delayed his return well I am thankful that he delayed his return if he had returned 50 years ago I'd have been born but I wouldn't have known Christ. And so his delay is to allow for, for more to be redeemed, for more to come to faith in Christ. 
with the surgeon out. So you could take a whole nother perspective on comparing the surgeons and recognizing that true salvation, true faith, true repentance does produce fruit and does right, produce right. change in that person's life. And that, you know, if you look at that Matthew passage, it, it's confirmation that, that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. So even though this, this servant claimed to be a follower, he didn't have genuine faith. So, Good discussion. Thank you all. Thank you all. I, I really think it, it's very healthy for us to, to discuss these things. Uh, the learning comes more when we, much deeper when we, when we have discussions. Let me pray for our time. Father, thank you that you sent your son to be the suffering servant who would take that the journey of the cross on our behalf, that he would suffer and die. But, but that's not the end of the story. He was raised. He ascended and he sits at your right hand. And he will return to establish his kingdom. Lord, come quickly. We long for your return. We love you, Lord, and we pray that you would continue to, to use your word this morning for your glory and our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.